0: Teaching from a hermeneutic that has to do with a non millennial covenantal perspective as opposed to dispensational premillennial perspective. So, all of that we talked about, we've been talking about. For weeks and weeks, Dean has done an excellent job of laying all of that into the foundation of what we've been doing. And, and so we're going to proceed now. Actually, I'm going to try to take bigger chunks now moving forward because Matt's asked me to try to wrap this up sometime before too long. So we'll probably take close to a chapter a week now moving forward. And, and it's going to be self-explanatory in the sense that because of the foundation that we've laid, it'll make sense to you easily to, to just kind of understand what we're going to be looking at. So just by way of quick review, chapter 8 is going to begin what's well, probably the third uh, major section of the book of Revelation. So chapters 1 through 3, somebody remind me. What, was, what were those speaking of, just briefly? The letters. the letters to the churches. So we see the Lord, and this is the diagram that Dean, I think, drew a few weeks ago. We see the Lord in the midst of his churches, chapters 1 through 3, seven churches, letters to these churches, the Lord speaking to the church, both of encouragement and also exhortation, areas that he was wanting to address that were areas in the church that were wrong in, that, in, their, in their life and in their existence and in their living out of the faith. And we know that those seven churches, though they were specific churches that were existing obviously in that time, are representative also of the church through the age. And things that we, as the church age, we've seen them repeated over and over again, and even in our day, we see a lot of these things uh, obviously are, are still existent in the church today. But in the midst of them, we see the Lord in the, in the, in the middle of the churches, and he's got the churches in his hands. He is Lord of his church, and he is working in his church to bring about his eternal purposes. And then we saw, beginning then in chapters 4 through 7, the seven seals were being opened on God's scroll. And these seals are visions uh, that, that John is receiving, apocalyptic vision of history, of a whole, the whole scope, if you would, of world history, and there are four horsemen on four horses, and they're bringing four apocalyptic declarations, if you would, of what is going to happen, listen again, throughout history, throughout the history of the church on the earth, we see these these four horsemen, and what were they representing? Anybody remember? Peace. What's that? Lack of peace, yeah, pestilence, Pestilence. conquest, war, and then death, death, and Hades and destruction. And so, that they you could, it doesn't really matter specifically so much, they're general in the sense that it represents what man has experienced and is experiencing and will continue to experience on the earth. So this is chapters four and then five. The seals are opened. And in chapter five, something takes place. What happens in chapter five? The lamb is slain. The lamb is slain. The lamb is slain. And what else takes place in chapter five? Oh, I'm sorry, in chapter 6, the fifth seal I'm talking about. What happens when the fifth seal is opened? So the four seals are opened. The fifth seal is then opened in chapter 6. I'm sorry. And what happens with the, when the fifth seal is opened? You see the, the cry of the saints, the, the martyred saints crying out, crying out for justice. And then the, the sixth seal is opened. And what does the sixth seal depict? The end of the age. So the sixth seal, and we've already talked about this, corresponds to the seventh trumpet and the seventh bowl. So the sixth seal is the depicting the end of the age. But it's amazing, though, that it doesn't really take us all the way. The sixth seal doesn't really conclude a, a picture of the end of the age. What happens at the very end of the sixth seal when the seventh seal is opened? There's silence in heaven, remember that, for half an hour. But before that takes place, there is an, there is an interlude, and it, it, gives, it takes us to the sealing of, of the saints. So the, there's a crying out in the fifth seal by the martyred saints, and then we hear, and then we see in the next chapter, the sealing of the 144,000. What does that represent? The of what? Complete number of God's people, and what, what does it represent? Being what? What's taking place? What's the ceiling represent? Okay. What's that? Yeah, it's and it's and they're sealed. they're they're, pre- they're they're protected. They're marked with the name of God. They are identified as being God's own. So there's this interlude between, between the silence and in, in the seventh seal being opened, and then there's this interlude where the saints are sealed. It's a picture of God's protection over the church through church history. And we see in this, in this chapter 7, when this takes place, we see this, the on the earth, we see the saints on the earth and we see saints in heaven crying out, crying out in worship and in praise to God. So, so we have this picture of, 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 of these, these seals and the, and the, the ap- apocalyptic purposes of God that are going to take place sovereignly on the earth throughout the church age. And then we see this in chapter 5, or when, sorry, I keep saying that. In the fifth seal, we see the church crying out, the martyred church crying out, justice, and then we see the sealing of the saints. Immediately upon that, we we find the church is sealed, protected, and then there is, in the beginning of chapter 7, chapter 8, there is silence in heaven. Look at chapter 8 with me, verse 1. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. So the sixth seal opens, we see, a, we see the end of all of the age, but we don't see it brought to its complete conclusion. Before that happens, it says there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. It's interesting. It says for about half an hour. So now what I want us to remember as we go through this now is that as we begin to look at the trumpets, that the seals and the trumpets and the bowls are not chronological. They have been interpreted that way by multitudes of commentators, by multitudes of writers, that would be really from a premillennial dispensational perspective, where this, all of these events are viewed chronologically. They happen sequentially. That's not how we've, we're understanding this book. These are overlapping. This is like three different visions of the same thing taking place. Three different perspectives of the same, same events, just from different, different angles taking place. It's been said by some commentators that the theme of the seven seals the theme of the seven seals is restraint. The theme of the seven seals is the restraint of judgment for the church. The theme of the seven trumpets is to announce victory. The victory of God. The victory of God and his judgment over the world. And the theme of the seven bowls is that of the wrath of God upon unrighteousness and ultimately his final judgment. So then turn with me, if you would, really quickly to Chapter 16, verse 17 of Revelation. Because as the seventh bowl is poured out, Revelation 16, verse 17, it says, the the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, and this is amazing, it is done. So we have this, we have this, This panoramic view of history with the four horsemen and the seals. The fifth seal is the cry of the martyred church. The sixth seal is opened and it is the judgment of God. Final judgment, the final end of all things. But before we see it brought to its full conclusion, we see that there's silence in heaven for about a half an hour this and and we know now that the church has already been marked the church has been sealed the church has been identified the church has been has been promised. It's received its inheritance of the down payment of eternity in the spirit. All of that is representative of, in chapter 7, of the sealing of the 144,000 on the earth. And there, being worshiping God, and then the picture of heaven and the saints in heaven worshiping God. It's the church already now, the, the, the triumphant church, the elect of God, we see in chapter 7. And then chapter 8, as we begin to look at the trumpets, and the and the seventh seal is open, it says there's Silence. That's this is a this is a really interesting part of this whole uh, storyline. What does the silence in heaven mean? What does it represent? And I think when Dean talked about it, he kind of went through it quickly. I want to go back to it a little bit and and talk about this silence in heaven. It's as though there's almost like there's a sense of awe of what's taken place up to this point, and in John is. Catching it, he's heard the saints in heaven singing and crying. He's and worshiping. He's heard the the martyred saints who's, who were below the altar, their souls below the altar, crying out for justice. And we see this the seventh, the sixth seal opened, and the and the, the pouring out, the final judgment of God. And then suddenly there's silence. It's as almost as though it's almost as though there is there is awe, but instead of seeing like the full fury of judgment, we get silence. Before any trumpets are blown, anything takes place, there is silence for half an hour. And it says, look in chapter 8 now. Let's read this together now, beginning in verse 1. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them and another angel and came and stood at the altar with a golden censer and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne so there's seven trumpets with seven angels with seven trumpets and then there's another angel now standing there with a golden censer and it was incense on this censer And he is going to bring this censer with incense on it, and he's going to mix it. It's going to be mixed with the prayers of the saints. And as this incense ascends to the throne of God, the angel takes the incense. Look what it says in verse 4. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. And the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and earthquake. Now, so as I was reading this and studying this, I'm going, what does this mean? Interesting, in in Luke 12, the Lord Jesus said this when he was on the earth amongst his disciples. In verse 49, he said, I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled so jesus is prophesying in a sense very clearly what john is now seeing as this fire this fire from heaven is thrown to the earth as a result listen of incense mixed with the prayers of the saints brought before the throne of god that have ascended the aroma of it ascending before god So it's clear that the fire of God's judgment is cast down in response to the prayers of the saints and the martyrs in the fifth seal. This this fire being thrown to the earth, and we're going to see now in in the trumpets being blown, we're going to see what this fire looks like. But it is in response, this is the key, it's in response to the prayers of the saints having been mixed with this incense whatever the incense was on this golden censer brought before the throne of God as the two mixed together ascending before God God then responds with lightning and thunder and earthquakes and fire being thrown to the earth in in chapter and when the fifth seal was opened in chapter 6 This is what they cried out when the saints cried out, the martyred saints, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? So in the judgment of the seventh seal being opened, and during this time of silence that John now is is experiencing where there is silence in heaven, the Lord is responding to the prayers of his martyred church, of his people. Now, I think Dean, when he was teaching through the fifth seal and the cries of the saints under the altar, the souls of those martyred, was speaking of all believers, probably. It represents all Christians who have died in faith. But it definitely also, definitely represents those who have been martyred for their faith. But isn't it the cry of our hearts, even as believers today, Lord, how long? How long until you avenge? How long until you deal with injustice? How long until injustice? How long until you deal with unrighteousness? I know that's my cry. I often find my heart crying out, Lord, how long when we see what's going on in the world around us. So I really think that the silence that's represented here in, in the beginning of chapter eight shows, listen to this, the importance of and the vital role that prayer plays in the eternal purposes of God. Prayer is the means by which God accomplishes his purposes in history. That's what this is showing us. The saints cried out, God is ready to unleash his wrath, his fury upon the earth. And then there is this picture that John sees of what has caused this to take place. And it is God responding to the cry of his people. It's God responding to the prayers of his people. Vindicating them, avenging them, and what has happened in their lives on the earth throughout history. Prayer is the means by which God accomplishes his purposes in history. There's such a mystery in that, isn't there? Because we know on the one hand that God doesn't need us. That God is not dependent on us in any way. But there's another important, amazing reality is that God uses us to accomplish his eternal purposes. Not just through our earthly lives and our obedience and whatever we do, but probably even more importantly through our prayers. And I'll be honest with you, I don't always remember this. I don't always have a great sense of the the importance of my prayers. Because we pray them and we don't always see results. We don't have answers that we feel are adequate to what has been in our heart, maybe. Or maybe it takes so long. Or maybe they just never seem to be answered, but they really are being. We just are not aware of it. But the greater reality is that it is, it is God's will that we would pray because it's His what we see here in Revelation, clearly chapter eight, it's what moves his heart to bring about his purposes. I think so often we are caught up with what we can do, what we have to do. We have to resist sin in our lives, true. We have to make right decisions, yes, we do. We have, to, we have to live our lives in a certain way, yes, we do. We have to stand against evil. We have to stand against unrighteousness, waging war, in a sense, against evil, that's true. But Revelation here, this, this text clearly places prayer first and our activity second, our effort second. Prayer is actually more powerful, more important even, than our activity. And I really think, if we're honest, we have those things reversed in our minds. We always think what we need to do, and then prayer might come down the road somewhere else. But this is teaching us a really important principle. If we catch nothing else in this text today, this is it. It's the power and the importance of prayer. Listen, to accomplish the eternal purposes of God to the prayers of his people. This moved the hand of God. This this seventh seal being opened is, is the picture of God responding to the prayers of his church. Prayer is an appeal to the sovereignty of God in accordance with the will of God. Prayer is an appeal to the sovereignty of God in accordance with the will of God. Now, I'd say that I believe most of us in this room today have a pretty good idea of what the will of God is today. Not specifics for your life, perhaps, but generally in terms of God's plan and God's desires for mankind, for his church. I would say most of us have a pretty clear idea of what the will of God is. So when we pray, then we must pray. When we come together Tuesday nights once a month, seems totally inadequate. When we come together once a month on Tuesday nights to pray, we're praying according to the will of God, and we're appealing to the sovereignty of God to accomplish His eternal purposes. Because God has put in our heart an understanding of what He wants to do. So, yes, we can pray for ourselves. Yes, we can pray personally and, and, and individually, and that's a good thing to do. It's a good thing to do that. But th- this, this prayer here in, in chapter 8 and the response of God to it and it, it moving the hand of God to the point where these trumpets now are representing the response of God to the prayers of, of his people in one sense, we'll see, is a result of a, of a different kind of praying of understanding. Lord, we know what your will is. We understand what your purposes are, what you want to accomplish, and what you've promised to do in Christ for mankind. And now we pray, Lord, according to that will, that your hand would move, that you would do, oh God, what what you have promised you will do. And we cry out, Lord, for justice. We cry out for righteousness. We cry out, Lord, that you would be glorified on the earth that your kingdom would come and your will would see that's the heart we pray as we as and, and god it moves that moves the heart of god and by the spirit of god we even understand it in more depth we understand it with more clarity he gives language to it as we as we pray this is a really powerful interlude in the book of revelation that teaches us something that we just have to learn we have to hear You see, God takes more notice of the prayers of his saints than he does of the dictates and the decrees of any government. The prayer of the little lady in her prayer closet is more powerful than the decree of any president or any dictator or any king. So when the prayers of the saints ascended before God, John writes that the earth was shaken. This is what moved the hand of God. And the symbolism of thunder and lightning and earthquakes are the same as when God came upon Mount Sinai in Exodus 19. It was so frightening. It was so powerful. That they actually had to rope it off so that no animals would even touch it. Let alone humans, lest they die. The awesomeness of this holy God coming to earth. This is the picture, and it's a picture of God doing what he's doing now. And it's thunder and lightning, and we're going to see it acted out here in a moment as we look at the trumpets. But it's so God is saying, by your prayers, I will overthrow governments. I will confound human plans. I will turn the world upside down to deliver my ransomed people. It's not unlike the plagues of Egypt, is it? And we're going to see how similar these trumpets are, these four trumpets, to the plagues of Egypt in the book of Exodus. Why did God do that? Oh, I'll get to that. I'm jumping ahead of myself. So if we jump ahead to the blowing of the final trumpet, that's not found until chapter 11. Turn to it. Chapter 11, this is the blowing of the seventh trumpet. If we jump ahead, we find in verse 15 that The seventh trumpet is finally blown. So we're in chapter 8. The seventh trumpet's not going to be blown until chapter 11. But this is what it says in verse 15. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, Listen, this this is the final result. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. That's the culmination. You see, that's, that is the goal. That's, what, that's where this is heading. That's what God's purposes ultimately are and will bring about. That the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms, the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. So, the sixth seal is opened. We see the judgment of God beginning to be poured out. He goes to the seventh seal. Right when it's opened, suddenly there's silence. And in that silence, John sees what has moved the hand of God. (laughs) And all of the things that will follow now in the book of Revelation, listen, everything that will follow, everything that, that John now will see, now it's not chronological, it's a recapitulation of the same thing over and over again, but everything that will follow as we read the book, are all these things are a response, John has learned, to the prayers of God's people. Moving the heart and the hand of God. So now pick up in verse 6, the seven trumpets. Let's look, read. I'll read through the end of chapter 8. Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. And the first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood. And these were thrown upon the earth. Now remember, this is all a response to the cries of God's people. These were thrown upon the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. And the second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain, burning with fire, was thrown into the sea. And a third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. Then the third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. And the fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day... Might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. And then I looked and I heard the eagle crying with a loud voice as it direct flew directly overhead Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blasts of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. Trumpets are now blown. Now, again, this is not chronological from the seals in the sense of history. We're seeing the same things that the seals depicted generally now being more specifically revealed with the trumpet blasts and their focus, and probably more importantly, why the trumpets are blown. There's a lot of different examples of trumpets in the Old Testament. Leviticus 23, they're blown in memorial or remembrance. In Joshua chapter 6, they are blown because of triumph. In 1 Kings 1.34, trumpets are blown during a coronation, memorial or remembrance, triumph, coronation. In Judges 4, they were blown as a warning. In Judges, excuse me, that was Jeremiah 4. In Judges 7, Ezekiel 7, Hosea 8, they are blown, listen, to announce judgment. So if we look at the text here, let me ask you, what do you think was the purpose of the blowing of these trumpets? Was it for remembrance? No. Was it coronation? No, not yet. Was it for triumph? No. Probably these are being blown more for warning and probably ultimately to announce impending judgment. And so we're going to see pictures of judgment here as we've read these four trumpets, these first four. So the first one, interesting. This first trumpet, hail and fire mixed with blood. Now, right away, you've got to know that this is not literal. There's no way that you would ever think we're going to see blood being poured on the earth from heaven. It's not literal, this is symbolic, it's a metaphor. And John is looking back to Exodus and to the plagues of Exodus and what took place in the the plagues of Exodus with blood. The Nile turned to blood. But here's the difference, though. What John is seeing, unlike what took place in the book of Exodus, Exodus was focused on one nation. What John sees now affects many nations. It is is a larger, broader perspective Of what God's judgment will bring it's a third of the earth that's affected the trumpet tells us so it's limited in its devastation but in a way that affects the earth in a much broader sense than what the plague did in Egypt because it was only one nation now it's affecting the lives of multitudes of men's men and women The second trumpet, something like a great mountain burning with fire. I just read this this morning. This is interesting. Let me find it for you. This is an article that was written this morning in the Washington Post. It says it was born in the summer of 2018 just off the coast of the tiny island of Mayotte. I think that's how you pronounce it. A French territory halfway between Madagascar and Mozambique. An earthquake swarm in May of that year, 2018, precipitated the arrival with a drum roll, like a drum roll of an of a volcano forming under the sea. Look at this second, second trumpet again. Something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea. It was interesting to me how amazingly close to that picture this is. It says, For months this underwater volcano announced its birth with mysterious cries. A low seismic humming too faint to feel, but it wasn't until November 11th, 2018 that anyone noticed. Something strange happened that day. Seismic waves traveled all over the world to Kenya, Chile, Canada, Hawaii, nearly 11,000 miles away with a humming that grew louder and louder and longer, lasting up to a half hour. This is most odd a most odd and unusual seismic signal, a New Zealand earthquake enthusiast wrote on Twitter. This post caught the attention of seismologists worldwide as they tried to pinpoint the source of the bizarre droning frequency. It was coming from the coast of Mayotte. Mayotte. They certainly learned, and now a team of German geoscientists has been pierced together to find out exactly why. This whole episode is really, really rare this German scientist said, seeing this deep magma chamber, seeing the magma's propagation to the surface, seeing this volcano being born is absolutely unheard of and unique. And he goes on to just describe exactly how it took place. Deep in the crust of the earth, the magma was stirring. A pocket of magma decided it wanted to erupt, and so it started heading for the surface. You see, these, there's all kinds of things throughout history, and I'm going to look at more of them here in a minute, of, of things that are very much in accordance with what these trumpets are representing. A third of the sea became blood and dried, like the Exodus plagues, chapter 7. And the third trumpet, a great star falls from heaven, touching the water, the fresh water. So not only is the ocean polluted, but the fresh waters are polluted. Affecting all of the life that comes from the water systems, the water, all the waterways, both the salt water, the ocean, even the fresh water. In the fourth trumpet, cosmic disturbances, things that take place cosmically. I just read the other day, this is interesting too, that the sun, as far as they could tell, there had been no Sun spots, nothing that was taking place on the face of the sun for the longest period of time that they had ever been able to track in history. There's always some kind of an explosion, or they call it a sunspot, on the sun that they record to go off daily. And I forget how many days in a row it was. I read this probably about a month ago, where the scientists were going, There has not been any activity on the sun for longer than we can ever remember having been recorded. They didn't know what it meant. They didn't know why that was the case, but they simply were recognizing that it was happening. I haven't read anything recently about it, so probably the, the sun is, you know, doing what it normally does. But it's just Interesting that we see things that, that are happening on the earth, even in the heavens, that scientists are now brilliant, can recognize and can see and can begin to gain some kind of scientific understanding, of, but they really don't have any ability to control any of it or to do anything about it. These things have been happening throughout human history because nothing is outside the sovereign God's control. There is no such thing as a natural disaster. Of course it happens in the natural realm, but nothing is happening by chance. Hear this. We're talking about a biblical worldview here. Nothing is happening by chance. Nothing happens apart from God's sovereign purposes and God's hand. This is, this is the Christian worldview. And this has been happening throughout human history. And I believe that these four trumpets, what they're depicting to us, is how God has touched the earth in such a way as to shake it. It's the trumpet-blowing, announcing announcing impending judgment across the whole earth. But right now in the trumpet blast, it's only been in history, now it's been limited. It's, been, it's, been, it's only had a certain a, a scope in its effect on the earth. But it has taken place. Let me read these to you. Any, e- any easy Google search, you can bring these up yourself. It's a list of the 10 deadliest disasters recorded in history, from the lowest to the highest. Aleppo, Syria, 1138, an earthquake, 230,000 killed. The Indian Ocean in 2004, do you remember that one? The tsunami, 230,000 approximately dead. An earthquake in China, 1920, 240,000 dead. Another earthquake, 1976, 242,000. In 526, in Antioch, Syria, 250,000, an earthquake. A cyclone in India, 1839, 300,000. An earthquake in China, listen to this, 1556, 830,000 dead. A cyclone in Bangladesh in 1970, From anywhere from 500,000 to a million died. A flood in China in 1887, up to 2 million died. And another flood in China in 1931, they say anywhere between 1 and 4 million people died. Just the other day, there was another earthquake, Puerto Rico. Series of earthquakes. New Zealand had a volcano that blew about a month ago. Did you read about that? Wiped out a whole village. See, all of these things are happening across the face of the earth. And, and the news will, re- will look at them and they call, listen, this is this interesting. What do they call them at times? Especially the insurance. What's the insurance call it? Or an act of God. That's the language. It might even be written in, in one of your insurance policies. It's an, it's an act. What's, what is it in French? Force majeure. It's an act of God. An act of God. And, and really, that is exactly what it is. But it would be very politically incorrect to specifically say this was God's hand. Wouldn't it? You would not get away with that if you said, God is beginning to judge mankind. But I'm going to tell you, that's exactly what it is. That's what this picture is is showing us God is sharpening John's focus from the seals which talked about geopolitical trouble war conflict famine death and so on in a in a in a general sense and now he is saying this is going to be localized John there's going to be devastation upon the physical infrastructure of the earth that which supports the whole human race, I'm going to touch it. And when you you depend on the fields and you depend upon the water and you depend upon certain things remaining as they always have, when it begins to change, know that it is my hand. It's as though the Lord is saying, I'm going to shake things up, John. And you need to realize that. uh, Excuse me, Hebrews 12 tells us what? Everything that can be shaken, will be shaken. And the only thing that will remain is that which is what? Of God. So there's two things that I think the Lord wants us to to learn from this and we need to wrestle with. There's a connection between this, as I said, and the plagues of Egypt, what John sees in the plagues. And the plagues help us, uh, helps inform us of God's intention, of what he's revealing regarding his judgment on the earth with regards to natural disaster. The first thing is, is that he is judging mankind. Because when God sent his plagues upon the nation of Egypt, he was doing two things. He was delivering his people, but he was also judging that nation. Two things, listen, were happening simultaneously during the plagues. He was delivering his people. We already read this. This is in response to the prayers of the saints in the fifth seal. It's God avenging his church. You think God doesn't love his church? You think that we're just some... You know, small little thing in the scheme of things in Sacramento. No, I mean we see picture here of God shaking the whole earth in response to the prayer of Colleen Kashiwagi. That's what God feels toward us. Psalm eighteen says that exact thing. Yes. Yeah. Read it, Kev. Please. Death encompassed me. The torrents of ungodliness terrified me. In my distress, I called to the Lord and cried to my God for help. Then the earth shook and Uh, quaked. The foundations of the mountains trembled and were shaken because he was angry. Why? For us. Smoke went out of his nostrils. Fire from his mouth devoured. Coals were kindled. He bowed the heavens and came down. Yeah, that's exactly on, it. Yeah, on. that's it, Kev. That's exactly it. That's excellent. So God is delivering his people, but he's also judging Egypt because Pharaoh had hardened his heart. The scriptures tell us that God hardened Pharaoh's heart, but God hardened a heart that was already hard. He just gave it over to His heart its hardness. So if if that's the theology of the Old Testament, can we believe that it carries into the new? What do you think? Yes. Look look at uh, Romans 1. This is amazing to me. Romans 1, I love this. Verse 18. The judgment of God upon the earth. Romans 1, 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from where? From heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Or it reads in some other translations more literally, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven. It is currently happening, Paul said. This is what John is seeing a picture of. He's seeing the wrath of God being revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness. In natural ways, according to Revelation chapter 8. So when God shakes the earth in these ways, and as what we see in the book of Revelation here, he is first and foremost doing it in judgment. Now, this represents a biblical conundrum and and something that we need to just quickly talk about because we hear this said and we say this ourselves, how sad for all these innocent people. This is one of the major complaints against God by unbelievers, an apologetic dialogue. if you're trying to share your faith with someone and you say God is good and loving, what is their response? How can he let these things happen? And what's the inference? Because these people are innocent. Because in terms of being innocent, there are none in relation to God. That's not a biblical Understanding that is a human sentiment. These poor people. Look at John three. You guys know John three sixteen, right? Someone quote it to me. Whoever believed in him, right, and not perish. Okay, we know that scripture. We quote it, and we rip it out of context. Because let's read what goes on after this. Verse, chapter three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Verse 18, listen. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in him is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only true God. He's already condemned. There are no innocent before the Lord. There are none who are righteous. Every man, woman, and child born into this world is born into it condemned in sin. Man is not innocent before God, ever. No man. No man is is good enough before God to be declared innocent. By nature. And you see, without understanding this, the gospel doesn't make any sense. That's why we are moved to preach it, to teach it, to speak it. So God is judging man in his rebellion and in his unbelief, in his idolatry. And he does it by sweeping him away in great natural disasters, as well as through war, geopolitical conflict. That's the hand of God. No, that's that's the evil of man in war. Yes, it is. But sovereignly, ultimately, we've already read in the seals that it's a horseman who has been released to make war. And these natural disasters we see are trumpets that John has seen as having been blown of impending judgment. We can't view natural disaster as random, arbitrary acts that occur in an uncontrolled universe as a result of some spirit of Mother Nature that has no specific design or purpose. Mother Nature. A spirit of Mother Nature. Earth Day. Idolatry. And God, in his, in his wrath against unrighteousness and evil in the heart of man, man can born condemned in their sin already, in response to the prayers of his people crying out for, for justice and for the will of God to be done, sweeps his hand across the earth. And he begins to warn and announce that this is where things are heading. This is only the beginning. You see, the man, this concept of the earth and mother nature and this natural disaster being caused by some natural thing taking place is atheistic and evolutionistic. And it's not biblical. Because these things we see clearly here are specific in the sovereign design of God to deal with the wickedness in the heart of man. And this, this should cause us, this should put fear in the hearts of men to realize this God is an awesome God and it should move us in our hearts to, to, to have the gospel uh, continue to go forth. I got a lot more to say about it. We're gonna have to quit for today. You guys All right. I know this is a really encouraging teaching, but it's so important to know. It's so important because, and I really hope that it moves you and moves us to prayer more. To see how powerful our prayers are, to see that God is 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 wanting to move as we bring our hearts and this angel, this picture that He has of this angel that 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 brings this sensor, this sensor, the bowl of censor with incense, and it's mixed with the prayers of Capital City Church as it prays, and it comes before the, the throne of God, and God is moved by it. And this is interesting, and I'm just going to say this as I close, God's response is not to go, oh, my poor church, I'm just going to come along, and I'm just going to make them happy, and I'm just going to give them everything they need, and... Gosh, I don't want him to be sad, and I don't want him, what does he do? No, that's not what he does. He just moves his hand, and he just, he touches the earth. And Mount St. Helens explodes. <laughs> and it sets off who knows what into the atmosphere, right? That does who knows what for countless how many years. And Chernobyl, Chernobyl melts down. I don't know if you guys saw that special, it was last year on Chernobyl. It was really well done. Just see the effect of what took place through Chernobyl. How close that was to polluting the earth. And for sure at least a third of the earth. Just like the trumpets prophesied, had it reached the groundwater. I mean, seriously, that, this is the hand of God. This is the hand of God. Japan and the, and the tsunami and the earthquakes and the nuclear facility being shaken to the point now, what's going, on, what's going into the water now around Japan? Do you, guys, do you guys follow this stuff? Do you read it? Or do you just stick your head in the sand? No, I'm, I'm serious. I know a lot of Christians don't want to think about these things because it scares them. We need to know what's going on on the earth because God is on the move. And I want to see the hand of God, and I want to know what God is doing so that I can put my prayers to it. They were finding radiation levels in fish in commercial fishing that they can't use. Yeah. Yeah, we've been told already, you know, don't eat fish that are caught in certain parts of off the coast of Seattle or somewhere up there in the Pacific Northwest because of the radiation from the nuclear plant in Japan. Doesn't that sound a little bit like what we've been reading here? Absolutely it does. Father, thank you. We, we thank you that you are on the move. We thank you, Lord, that, that your eternal purposes are being worked out on the earth, even as we rose this morning. And We can read the newspaper or read the internet, whatever we read, to find what's happening on the earth, what's happening around the world. It's the hand of God is, is at work, and we know why you're at work, Lord. We know why you're doing what you're doing. You showed John 2,000 years ago in a series of visions what would be taking place. And he even knew what had happened in Pompeii just years before he wrote this with a volcano that had destroyed a whole people. Lord, these things are true. They've been going on since we can look at human history. And and we know that during this church age, Lord, that you have promised that you would keep us. Not that you'd keep us from death, but that you would keep us in Righteousness, and you would keep us, Lord, in Christ, and that we are sealed by the Holy Spirit until the day of redemption. We thank you for that. We thank you that you are at work to bring about your purposes, and Lord, in the meantime, teach us how to pray, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, guys, we're going to continue next week, and again, would you just read into chapter 9 and we'll try to cover a big chunk, okay?